0: Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook.
1: Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. Good Books Radio is a product of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a public service to the community and public radio. With me today is Karina Chocano, she has written for the New York Times Magazine, Elle, Vogue, New York, California Sunday Magazine, Good Magazine, and Wired, among others. She has been a film critic at Los Angeles Times and a TV critic and staff writer at Entertainment Weekly and Salon. She lives in Los Angeles, and the book is something we all ought to pick up. It's called You Play the Girl. You Play the Girl on Playboy Bunny, Stepford Wives, Trainwrecks, and other mixed messages. Uh, Ms. Tricana, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: This is a a, a, a wonderful read uh, for me in particular because I teach a course in gender and communication um, and uh, you know we talk about the first and second wave of feminism amongst other things and and, and about sex role, socialization and I was just walking down the hall where we record these programs and I saw one of my millennial students and I said this is a great read for feminists. She said, I don't consider myself a feminist. And I think that's a part of what goes on with the millennial Generation they don't, don't really connect with what the second wave did for them.
0: Uh, that's um, well, that's interesting. I mean, I I've, I've always I've felt like there's such a, a groundswell among um, young women these days um, who do call themselves feminists. But I I'm sure that it's that it's also varies by by region and and um, you know I'm sure that there's some variation in that. But it's true that that there is a kind of a different uh, focus and a different um, way that, that millennial feminists, I think, are connecting to feminism.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, sure. w- well, let's start with you play the girl. You, you talked about an interview of the actress in uh, The Wedding Crashers, and mm-hmm. she realized, uh, what, what's her name, Isla Fisher, yeah. Her, yeah. She, she realized that there just aren't many comic roles for women, that mostly they play the girl in the hot rod.
0: Yeah, that's right. And she, this interview is from a while ago. It was from 2008, mm-hmm. um, which is around the time when I started really thinking about this book, because it felt like sort of the nadir. Um, and at the time, you really looked around, and, and it wasn't just that there weren't any comic roles for any lead roles in comedies for women um, or comedies about women. But even when an, a, a comedic actress who we knew to be hilarious was cast in a smaller role, it was usually a kind of a punishingly humorless role. Mm-hmm. Um I I remember Sarah Silverman would get cast as um, you know, the the, the mean executive and it was just kind of always taken out or, or there was a, a movie with um with um uh the woman now I'm blanking on her name, but the woman from the Gil- Gilmore Girls and just but but never given any any of the funny lines. And it was just a moment I think where there was a real belief and and it was stated, you know, even studio executives um and major newspapers would say it, you know, would say uh i, I mean even I don't know if you remember this moment when um when um Christopher Hitchens wrote his infamous Women aren't honey. Mm-hmm. Column. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was something that, at the time, which now seems so absurd, but at the time it seemed it seemed absurd at the time. But somehow it was accepted as as, as something that we could seriously debate. So that was what really um, kind of spurred me to write it. But it took me a long time to get it together because it didn't. The, the, the culture felt very hostile to the message
1: at the yeah, time. Yes, uh, I can understand. And let's talk about the culture in which we're immersed, the patriarchal culture in which we've been immersed, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as the second wave mm-hmm. of feminism emerged. Um, Disney gets a lot of uh, uh, analysis about this because of the stories of the various princesses and Alice in Wonderland. Let's start with Alice in Wonderland because you spend a good deal of time talking about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: how, is, how, does, how does that affect uh, women's sexual expectations?
0: Well, I thought you know that Alice in Wonderland was. First of all, it was it was not. Um, she was not a character that I particularly caught into as a child. And the way I sort of rediscovered her was that I tr- I found this beautiful edition and I bought it. I brought it home to my daughter, who was obsessed with Sleeping Beauty and all the princesses, but especially Sleeping Beauty. And we read Living Beauty every single night. And one night <clears throat> I said, you know, why don't we, d- let me read you from this book. And she listened to a few pages and shut it down, didn't like it at all. And then I, I went and I read it myself after she went to sleep. And I was really surprised to find how much I identified with Alice. Um, but also how mu- it, But also to sort of realize, like, oh, I didn't like her as a child, as a character. And I did, and I realized why that was. Um, and I had actually mentioned it to my mom and she said, I didn't like her very much as a child either. And I think that Alice is a character who, even though she's really beloved now, I mean, I think that it's mostly adults who love her, but she's the kind of girl that we're taught is an unlikable girl. You know, she's very, um, she's curious. She kind of gets in and she, you know, she sort of goes where she's not wanted. She talks back. She... She's emotional. She cries. She's sort of entitled. She thinks she's entitled to things. She's um, a little, kind of arrogant, and all these qualities that girls, you know, desirous of things, and all these qualities that girls are told make them unlikable. And when I, um, when I encountered her, I thought, "Wow, she's really a subject, you know." And it's rare to find a little girl subject, especially in a story that old. Um, and. And I really also identified with her um, her travels through Wonderland as a film and TV critic, having spent so much time it kind of in this nonsense world where none of the, the women, you know, these creature women who were presented to me as women made any kind of sense or seemed familiar in any way.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, media so much affects how we think and what we behave, how we behave. And your first chapter about bunnies talks about that your sexiness came from your grandfather's playboys and Bun- Bugs Bunny in drag. Let's talk about that a <laughs> bit.
0: Well, that chapter, you know, so I basically go from reading to uh, my daughter uh, uh, reading Alice in Wonderland and Sleeping Beauty to my daughter to sort of jumping back to when I was her age, at around age six. And my grandfather, who was just just a hilarious man, actually had, you know, I think he, I now understand it better. I think he really identified at the time, you know, with this kind of madman ethos. Like, he was just really into it. He had his game room with his felt-covered poker table and his, you know, just all his stuff in what you would, I guess, call, like, his man cave or whatever, his bar, and he had, he... Would get Playboy, and he instead of he didn't hide them. He had them like leather bound by year, nah. and they looked like encyclopedias. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were like proudly displayed on the shelf. So we used to, you know, as kids, we used to sneak them off the shelf and go look at them. And I just and and so I was young enough, I think, that just the idea of like looking at these kind of collections of new girls. Plus, this is like Playboy nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy four or something. I think was his collection. Mm-hmm um so they they were very like they just looked kind of like these specimens you know like these strange little bunnies in 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 like museum dioramas and i remember just trying to figure out how to relate to that like was this like it was this strange almost like a horror movie body horror like am i going to turn into this and be this bunny in this cage or is it worse if i don't and then i'm nothing because there's no representation of a grown-up woman who isn't a sexy woman, it was just this whole idea of, like, women are sexiness, and the way that's created, and the way I think little girls absorb it, whether you want them to or not, they absorb it from a very young age, because I would say, you know, the very, very large majority of the images we get of women, and stories we get about women, is about their sexual desirability. Mm -hmm. And so, we teach that, even pre-verbally, and, um, you know, before you can read anything, learning that the most important thing is prettiness. And I've seen it even in my own daughter, you know, who was six years old in two thousand and twelve or whenever it was. She she absorbs it from driving around, from looking at billboards, from looking at the you know, ad on the bus that goes by. Mm-hmm. Um and Sleeping Beauty was her favorite because she was the prettiest. And that's definitely something that little girls are taught from 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 a very, it's a very
1: primal thing. It's one of the very first things that they learn. Yeah, there was a line in in this uh, essay about uh, looking at naked girls didn't make you feel powerful. It made you feel like you were um, uh, visible and negated and exposed. And Mm -hmm. I I think Hefner had it in his mind that if he uh, communicated that nice girls like sex too, that he would be aligned Uh with feminine liberation, but that isn't how it turned out.
0: No, and you know, I it's funny, I learned a lot about Hefner in writing this essay because I'd had this idea too that like Playboy was part of liberation and you know, I sort of vaguely heard that. And I don't know if he ever claimed that himself, but the more I read, the more I learned that he really thought of himself as um sort of an anti feminist and as someone who and as someone who was in direct opposition to um feminism. And in fact, when um, there was a there was um, a piece on Playboy that there was oh there was a piece on the feminist um, on the women's movement that was assigned to a reporter to a female reporter that Playboy was going to run and he killed it because it was too sympathetic to the movement and he you know his memo was like uh, these women are are natural enemies so he very much saw himself as constructing an identity that was in direct opposition. And I think that's what also made me understand, like, my grandfather's collection. You know, there was... My grandfather, it wasn't that he was, like, this is the reason they weren't really hidden away, and he was, like, proudly reading the magazine for the articles, you know, in front of everybody. He... There was a real identity built around that. Like, this is what mid-century masculinity looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen it in Mad Men, you know, now we're all pretty familiar with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask you, because you are of a Hispanic culture, and my wife is, is, is Hispanic, mm-hmm. uh, was it more traditional uh, roles, expect, expectations in your household?
0: You know, I always wonder about that. Um, it, my family's from Peru, and I don't think all Latin American countries are necessarily the same same in this, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think that, um, and I don't think that that they're the same across um, socioeconomic lines either, so it really depends what you mean by traditional, I guess. I mean, my family, um, yes, you know, the women got married and did not work, but that was also true of the American women of my mother's generation that I knew growing up in the suburbs.
1: Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that a little bit, too. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, they were not any different in that sense. If anything, they actually, um, honestly, if anything, they actually sort of worked less because they had a lot more domestic help. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of a, I mean, if anything, there was more of a, uh, I saw a more kind of, I don't know how to put it, but I'm a little bit more of like a kept or queenly existence, you know, mm-hmm. that was just more about like going out with your friends and doing things, you know, being with the kids, nothing too different, nothing, not the hard stuff, you know. And and it, was, it certainly wasn't like you be quiet, you know, it wasn't like don't speak. And I never ever saw that. And in a way, that's why the messages are mixed, because I was never told I wouldn't go to college or that I wouldn't, I was never ever told that I wouldn't do something because I was a girl. Mm-hmm. Um but 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 when I looked out into the world I was like, Well where are the women doing the things in my world? And I didn't didn't really see them. So it was a much softer expectation Um, I guess it's a much it was a much softer socialization but definitely there was some you know of course there's tradition in in terms of like there's a double sex there's a double standard in terms of sex you know there was a double standard in terms of like well your brother's allowed to go out wherever he wants but we need to know where you are kind of thing Um, a sort of more protective double standard Mm -hmm. but um but not a kind of like women do, you know. Not 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 in an in a in an oppressive way or in a way that was um, very clear and noticeable.
1: Yeah, I think tradition will, might have been a bad term. It probably be more accurate to talk about patriarchal. Um, yeah, it, 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 it was like
0: a soft patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not sort of like it's not the Taliban, but it's you know, but it's like <laughs> you see it's soft patriarchy and it's and it's insidious and it's denied and it's you know. Mm-hmm. And but that's and I you know is it worse in Latin countries than in you know I don't know in some ways in some ways it is in some ways it isn't honestly I think women are actually listened to more in Latin countries.
1: Okay, Um, (laughs) I don't want to leave out the androgynous cartoon character who's my favorite of all time, Bugs Bunny, because you mentioned him as part of the influence there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is is his androgyny part of why? he sends signals regarding sex role socialization?
0: I think he, for me, what's interesting about him is that he, um, he kind of occupies this in-between, yes, he's in-between androgynous um, space. We assume he's male, of course, and he acts male, you know, in a lot of of cases. But he's, um, but he's, prey, also. Mm-hmm. you know, he's So he's not the predator. And so he's in the role of the prey. And actually, Hefner had this great quote that I have in the book where someone asked him why he chose bunnies um, as the symbol. And he said, because in America, it's a very sexual animal. It's a playful animal. You know, it comes up to you, it sniffs, it sniffs you, it jumps away, it hops away, you know, you play with it. So there's this whole idea that it's like this sexualized and feminized animals. So it's interesting that this, like, kind of um, this kind of what, what? How would you describe Bugs Bunny? Is this kind of picturesque figure, you know? And so he 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 does have the you know uh, uh, these male qualities, but he's in this body that's that's um, traditionally coded as mm-hmm. um, the prey and the the, the bunny. Mm-hmm. So he's he's very interesting that way. So he's able to kind of like move between both and sure it's the you know whenever they're making those um loon tunes it's a long time ago and so his dressing up um as a girl is presented is always a comic thing but it's really it was fascinating to me to see him basically use his femininity to um kind of uh, trick people you know and escape these situations like that was always the thing like if i don't get out i'm gonna get killed if i don't trick this person.
1: <laughs> so he
0: would trick them with this, like, exaggerated femininity, and it was always, like, extremely exaggerated. It was like, he's Carmen Miranda, he's a ballet dancer. You know, it was always, like, some extreme. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was just so fascinating, like, because Bugs as a boy has nothing on and Bugs as a girl has tons on, like, fruit on the head and lipstick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, like, absolutely every... Um, Every uh, accessory you can pile on him, he has on. So it's like the idea that femininity is all you know. This this thing that you put on is really interesting. In that you know, th- that's how they present that idea. Like, and and that's how all cartoons present it. Like, masculinity is just bare essence, and femininity is just a bunch of like accessories.
1: Hmm. Very good. It, <laughs> you also juxtaposed. Uh, two very different works, The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan and Stepford Wives, which is, was an eerie movie that just scared me when I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that uh, men were going to kill off their wives and make sex bots, robots that were, you know, uh, there for sex and cleaning the house and uh, mindless otherwise was just really eerie. And uh, it 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 also speaks to the issue that, that often... Uh, comes Up when you read the Feminine Mystique about marriages fail when wives don't try hard enough,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and it's just really uh, that that really got to me at a gut level.
0: Well, the Feminine Mystique was it was published in 1963, and it was it was actually you know Betty Friedan kind of she was a little older than the generation of second wave feminists, and she had been a labor organizer and a union organizer, and she'd written for like. Um, She'd written for the union newspapers and stuff, and she'd written, and then she was a freelancer for magazines, uh, women's magazines, and she was married and living in the suburbs and feeling pretty dissatisfied and and sort of thinking back at her college, um, the cla- her class at college. I can't remember when she went to one of the Seven Sisters colleges and went back and sort of talked to her friends and found that they had all, you know, they were all like highly intelligent, highly educated women and who had then at the because of the time. Um, been expected to just get married and go live in the suburbs and raise kids. And people think that this is the way things always were. But in fact, you know, um, you know, that we did have other there were a lot of women in the workforce and it's not and it wasn't just during uh, the war or because of the war. But during the war, there had been, you know, obviously a ton of women in the workforce and a a network of um, government free um government preschool set up so women could work, which is something that nobody seems to know about. But it's like people know that Rosie the Riveter went to work and no one asks how she was able to do it. And it was like this network of like high quality, um, free uh daycares mm-hmm. that were dismantled after the war by the by the right because they thought it would lead to socialized whatever and that you know, the family should take care of it. So it was a very much a right-wing effort to, like, shut those down and put women back in the in the home. And so for a lot of women, especially who are highly educated, it was really frustrating. And that was what I think Betty Friedan was sort of identifying. She was like, look, the advertisements tell us that we're so happy vacuuming in our pearls. And meanwhile, every woman I know who supposedly has it all and is sort of the, the affluent ideal... You know, the white, affluent, bourgeois ideal is actually miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's what the Stepford Wife is about, it, but just in this, like, be horror form. Yeah. Um, she, because Fredanne was basically doing um, a lot of research into how does the media tell us this? How does the medical profession tell us this? Like, how has, you know, the mother's little helper thing, like, this, the, Kind of wave of the rash of depression that 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 there was, and you know, just how do we even think about um, women who are dissatisfied with basically um, doing nothing but free labor in the home? um, They were just pathologized and told, Mm -hmm. "You're not doing what you're born to do." There's something wrong with you. Um, Whereas, in the so in the separate wives, basically, what they do is they kill them and replace them with robots who are happy to iron all day and talk about, and they talk about, their conversations are like commercials about laundry detergent.
1: Mm-hmm. And, I, <laughs> I, you know, I I have shown uh, a history of, of television ads and, and print ads in my gender class, and we, we look at uh, so, some of the most ridiculous. I mean, th- there's this recommendation that you buy the latest vacuum cleaner for your wife for Christmas, and she's yeah. almost having an orgasmic experience when she sees what a good clean house she's going to have. And it just are
0: uh, these old ads from that t- time? Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. indeed.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, that uh, that sort of touches on on, on another sub- subject. Because I wasn't aware of this column until I read it in your book. Can this marriage be saved? Uh, oh yeah. That really struck me hard.
0: <laughs> that anyone who anyone who, who grew up like in the 70s and if their mother got Ladies' Home Journal is obsessed with this column. Mm-hmm. It was this very um it was this very um kind of uh, I lured a column about, Mm -hmm. it was was basically, a woman would present her side of the story of of the problems she was having in her marriage, and then the man would present his side of the story, and then the counselor would present his side of the story. But the counselor turned out to be this, like, um, extreme um, right-wing eugenicist, actually, who was very, very firmly into, like, you know, traditional family values. And so the woman was always wrong. Like, she could say, he beats me, and then he would say, well, maybe you should talk less. You know, it was always the yes, answer. Yes,
1: right, yeah. like,
0: what are you saying to piss him off so that he punched you? You know, so the column was, like, this weird hermetic horror story. It reminded me of um, of the Stratford Wives because you had this sense of this – you always had you often had the sense of the woman being trapped in the situation um because no matter what was happening the counselor was saying that she just had to accept it and stay yeah um or like there was somewhere like say the husband didn't want to get married and he wanted you know he was into like to free love movement and whatever, and he wanted to move to San Francisco. And he would, the counselor would like force the guy to stay, but then you, of course, you know that didn't end well,
1: right? So and this, this <laughs> all, the, all the blame is on the woman, whether it's domestic violence or infidelity or infertility, it's, it's all the yeah. wife's fault in these columns. And I didn't know that the Ladies' Home Journal was run by men for years, oh, there, yeah, there were no women they all writers, were. yeah,
0: except for. Except for Helen Gurley Brown, yeah, who is, and she's, you know, she's a somewhat polarizing figure, but she was definitely the only one who was running it, who was a woman running one of these magazines and doing it from at least her, you know, her perspective. But they were all run by men, and they were all, um, and they were very much, you know, devoted to the sale of, of soap and makeup. I mean, you know, that's kind of their purpose. So... So there's always been a tension that even still exists between, you know, what these magazines write about, at, you know, which it can be amazing, it's, you know, is amazing often, um, but also but with, compared to what they're often selling. You know, the mixed message is really apparent in women's magazines, even to today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, women's Home, uh, Ladies Home Journal um, was run by men. All the editors were men except for one. And it was occupied by a group of media women, um, who demanded, you know, kind of had a sit-in and demanded that they start writing about things that women would need to know about, like how. And it was really very prescient. It was stuff like how do your ta- how to talk to your son about the draft, or how to, you know, what kinds of detergents are best to not pollute the rivers and oceans. And, yeah, I love that. Um, too. Yeah, really good stuff, you know, that, that they weren't were dealing with at all. Mm-hmm. Or how to get a divorce, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, people don't really know that in 1973, like, I it blows my mind, but I was in kindergarten in 1973. In 1973, if you were a woman with a job, you could be a single woman with a good job, and you couldn't get a car loan. Mm-hmm. You, couldn't, you couldn't get a credit card, you couldn't get a mortgage. And, you know, you depended on a man, any man, like your father, your brother, anybody to co-sign that um and and so you weren't really fully autonomous in the society you know and the equal rights amendment almost passed at that time and then you know there was a very big campaign for it not to pass and we still don't have it so you know it's it's i think it's something that's again it's like this soft patriarchy and it's something that we don't really look at um the effects but they really are there we see them all the time
1: I only have a couple of minutes left, but since you mentioned seventy three, mm-hmm. I'm going to move to seventy five because your favorite shows were Bewitched mm-hmm. and I Dream of Genie, and how did how did mm-hmm. that impact your life?
0: I loved those shows so much, you know, and they were they were so popular, obviously, and they were reruns, so they were already a little bit before my time. I was watching them, you know, after the fact, mm-hmm. but they were. Um, they were both about these incredibly powerful women. You know, one's a witch and one's a genie. They can like just wiggle their nose or do whatever and make and just make things happen. And the whole comedy and the whole narrative is about how they're in relationships with men who are trying to control them so that they don't use their power and how their power is ultimately extremely destructive, specifically to the men and their careers. Mm-hmm. which is really so interesting in terms of Me Too, if you think about it. I'm, like, thinking about this now. But it's, it's all about, oh, my God, Darren's going to lose his job because you're a witch, or Major Nelson's going to lose his job because you're a genie. And, yes. like, and you really, it's just this constant, constant refrain. And, you know, I think, like, fast forward, I don't know how many years you have Frozen, and what's Frozen about? It's about a blonde princess who is the legitimate heir to the throne of her country, and she has superpowers and these superpowers are so threatening that her parents lock her away and she banished banishes herself to a mountain. And it's like put a boy in that position. It's a king with superpowers.
1: Mm -hmm. What's
0: the problem? Mm -hmm. There's no problem. (laughs) You know?
1: Yeah It, it, it's interesting what we've done to disempower women through the years, and, and this book is a really good read in that regard. Uh, we've been talking with Karina Chocano. The book is You Play the Girl on Playboy Bunnies, Stepford Wives, train wrecks, and other mixed messages. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can also catch us on YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.